Good evening, everybody. Welcome. So, uh, it's time to talk about the third Hobbit movie at last. Um, you know, in preparing for tonight's session, I couldn't help but think back to last year. And you'll recall that last year, um, I did a really long... In fact, my my episode for this, you know, in this uh, spot last year was so long, I just split it up into two episodes uh, to post it because I thought nobody would listen to it otherwise. Um, I had so much material to talk about, largely because... My reaction to Desolation of Smaug, as you'll remember, um, was very much contrary to the sort of the general drift. A lot of people were um, complaining that it wasn't a very good movie, which, like, okay, like, they're correct about that, but that's not the point. Um, a lot of people were, this was, you know, of course this was when we first got Toriel, and of course when the whole Toriel, you know, people were trying to come to terms or not come to terms with the whole Toriel and Kiwi thing, and... Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of people sort of talking about the, the enormous, you know, extra added scenes like the, uh, the business with the, the King of Gold and all that. Um, and as you may remember, last year, my primary response was to essentially kind of cut across the grain of that because it's so easy to get, uh, sort of into a momentum of kind of ranting about something. Um, and my goal in last year's session was to sort of encourage everybody to kind of calm down and take a step back away from, you know, sort of the initial reaction in order to think things through a little bit more carefully and to really, to, you know, to, to, to really think about what's going on in the movie as we were given it and to be thinking about that in comparison um, you know, not plot point by plot point, but sort of idea for idea and theme for theme with what's going on in Tolkien's works. So as you recall, that's what I did last year. And it was in the context of that, that um, that was when, if I'm remembering correctly, I originally coined the idea of uh, Critfic because I was, I, I got, it was, it was, it was Toriel ultimately who uh, sort of drove me to that or people's reaction to Toriel, I should say, that sort of initially drove me to that. This year, I feel myself to be in some ways a kind of a more, like last year I was in a more controversial position and I don't think I'm going to be taking up anything like so controversial a position as I did last year. Um, but, uh, but I find myself in a, a more kind of complicated situation, mostly because my own reactions to this third film were really complicated. I found, I was like, after I got home from the film and for most of the following day that is yesterday, I was like, just kind of stunned. I was having a really hard time processing it. Um, one thing I will say about the film is that I actually enjoyed the experience of watching it more than I enjoyed the experience of, of watching, um, the really either of the other two, I think. Um, but, uh, um, But yet, I did not find that my mind was kind of racing along the same lines that it did last time. Um, let me, uh, <laughs> first of all, to, uh, let me, uh, let me, uh, uh, actually 
rush to say um, before I go any further. I know most of you are experienced. I mean, looking through the attendee list, um, I see that most of you are are, are experienced uh, with the Mythgard netmoot here, so you know the drill. Um, but for those of you who are new, I do want to make sure that you know. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say, and I'd love to address any questions that you have, or if there's a you know a topic for discussion that you'd really like to you know if there's something you'd really like to hear me talk about. Um, feel free to enter any of those things in the questions box there on your GoToWebinar control panel, uh, and I'll get those. Now, there are a lot of people here tonight, so I can't, I can't by any stretch promise to get to everything everybody says, but um, but I, I, I really am interested to hear uh, your thoughts about this. Um, Tom, <laughs> Tom Hillman said it was the sandworms that got you, right? And I, I, we might as well get that uh, uh, out of the way right at the beginning. Um, Tom, I have to admit that when the sandworms burst out of the side of the mountain, um, I felt as bewildered. I spent about the most stunned and bewildered minute that I have that I ever recall spending in a movie theater. I've, I don't think I've ever been so flabbergasted in my life. <laughs> um, as when those sandworms get, and I can't, I cannot but call them sandworms. I mean, especially since, of course, we just did Dune in the Mythgard Academy class. So, I mean, it was, it was like surreal. I mean, I honestly, I felt like I was having an out of body experience because I, you know, we, we just, we spent three months doing Dune, you know, in just like a month and a half ago. And, uh, um, and you know, and, and like this, and I'm watching the Hobbit film, and like you know, all of my synapses are firing on like Tolkien-related things, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, Mwadib, Mwadib, and I'm like, no, they're going to use the family atomics on the mountain. It was, I was just like, you know, so that was like the one point in the movie where like my uh, teenage nephews who went to see the film with me were like having to restrain me, but but then I remembered. Of course, they're in the book. Don't you remember when they're in the book? They're in the book. They didn't make those up. They didn't make up the bleeding sandworms. They're in the book. Um, that was the thing that even that blew my mind more than anything else. Like I said, I was sitting there and I was just like rocking with the shock of the sandworms, and then I put both of my hands on my head like this. And I said out aloud, like, so the people in front of me were, like, all turning around to see, like, with the crazy person behind them. I'm such bad company the first time I see these movies in the theater. I was like, it's in the book! I can't believe it! <clears throat> I have no signs on my door. It was painted a week ago. And I am quite sure that you have come to the wrong house. As soon as I saw your funny faces on the doorstep, I had my doubts. But treat it as the right one. Tell me what you want done, and I will try it. If I have to walk from here to the east of east and fight the wild wereworms in the last desert. I had a great-great-great-granduncle once. Bullroarer took. There you are. The wild wereworms. And, and the the the... the passage like this and this has happened to me lots of times in watching these movies where like a particular line a particular quotation will just like float back into my memory as i'm seeing this like i know exactly what they're thinking of i know exactly the moment that and and i just i laughed out loud and i was like whoa like i can't believe they put the wild werewolves in the film but there they are 
they are in the book. Now, yes, yes, yes. When Tolkien said the wild wereworms, it is highly unlikely that he was picturing Eric Keane's sandworms uh, when he said that. Um, that yes, the the um, the 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 worms. I mean, it's it's yes, they're, they're dragons of some kind, though. Never is it explained what exactly a wereworm is uh, and everything. Um, but um, anyway, <laughs> it's it's again. Now I don't give you that quotation uh, in order to um, <laughs> justify the way that they were manifested in the film, um, which I still don't really find very much excuse for. Um, but, uh, but I offer it to you, uh, in case it may, uh, help you in your own bewilderment, um, uh, at all. Uh, and, and, and again, and one of the things that I think, like, it's really important for people to remember, people talk about, like, oh, like, Jackson has added so much stuff. Jackson hasn't added very much stuff. That is to say, there are very few times, especially in the Hobbit films, even in the Lord of the Rings films, but more so in the Hobbit films, there are very few times when Peter Jackson and company are simply making up things. That is, uh, like, where they've invented uh, creatures. Like, they may invent a character like Toriel, but, like, they're were indeed, I, I'm assuming there were females among the Wood Elves, right? They gave her a role in, you know, they gave this person a role in the story that, you know, that person didn't have in the original story. But again, it's not like they're like making stuff up out of whole cloth about like a new race, a new something like that. I mean, again, like the, the what Toria was talking about, about the Sylvan Elves versus the Cinderin and, and her relationship with the star, all that stuff is really interesting. Um, and of course, you know, based on on Tolkien's world. You might not like the Rock'em Sock'em Stone Giants from the first film, but the Stone Giants are in the book. Again, you might not like what Jackson did with them, but again, he didn't just make up stuff. Um, that sequence is there. Um, uh, you know, again, like, okay, like, no, there's no, nothing said about Radagast riding a bunny sled, but again, you have to go that far down to, like, the particular and highly idiosyncratic mode of transportation that Radagast the Brown uses in order to find something um, that uh, that that Jackson is legitimately making up out of whole cloth, um, he doesn't actually do it all that often. And um, uh, anyway, oh, and of course, on, on the subject uh, of like uh, me behaving peculiarly in theaters, in every single one of the movies, I've had at least one moment where I reacted in what I'm sure most of the people sitting around me thought was a wildly inappropriate way. In the first film, of course, uh, it was my jubilation and, like, excited fist pump when Azog lifts up Thror's uh, uh, severed head, which, of course, I called in the riddle contest uh, and was was extremely excited to see. In the second film, it was when Azog turns and calls Bolg out of the shadows. You may remember my, like, little miniature Bolg fixation from last season, right before uh, the second film came out. I was so excited to see Bolg. I was like, yeah, Bolg! And everyone... And, you know, it, uh, it's, it's like you would have thought that, like, you know, uh, some teenage heartthrob had just come out onto the stage or something. And this time, of course, it was Roach, the raven. He didn't get a speaking part. Though I like to think that in that final moment when, when Roach comes back uh, from Dan, um, 
and uh, Thorin is in the middle of sort of smugly, uh, you know, uh, talking about how, you know, they're going to, um, you know, how the odds are better for them than it might appear. Um, uh, and Roak is sort of fixing him with this stare, with his head on the side. I, I was kind of, I, I want to kind of put in subtitles there. You know, if I could just go, just put in a little subtitle beneath Roak's expression that would say something like, you know, I will not, I, I do not call this council good. I would have been, I would have been, I would have been happy as a clam. But anyway, um, so yeah, you know, the, as soon as a raven flies onto the screen, I was like, yes! And again, it, I don't think it made any sense to anybody sitting around me. But anyhow, um, uh, so back to um, uh, Back to the worm issues. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, like they gave them a practical role, you know. I mean, we're, the, again, it says in the book that the goblins coming from Mount Gundabad in the north um, had primarily traveled uh, through tunnels underground, like they they had not been seen, um, uh, you know, by anybody on their way to the mountain. Um, so, like, we know that that happens. Um, one of the things, one of the trends that you do see is that a lot of the times, um, the movies, which makes sense for a story told in a visual medium, um, the movies sort of explain something or go out of their way to explain something, um, that, uh, the books don't really explain. In that case, where did the tunnels come from how on earth did they make tunnels through the solid rock uh, all the way in the end he's got his answer the, which i never in my life would have guessed the wild wereworms of the last desert so there you are um anyway uh it's uh, can i just uh i can confirm to make sure is, is everybody able to hear me okay is there, i know there's one or two people i think having audio problems, I just want to make sure that the audio problems aren't general, um, so, uh, or, or at least aren't too common. Um, everybody getting me okay? All right, good. Um, that for those of you, if the one or two of you who are having audio problems, you might, um, you might try logging out, logging right back in, um, that, that sometimes, um, that sometimes help, helps. Um, okay, good. Um, anyway, okay, um, here is my biggest problem with the film. And this is why I have a hard time. I mean, I've talked before. I hate being asked the question, what do you think of the films? And I'm like, do you want, do you have any idea how long my podcast episodes on this film are? Like, do you really want an answer to that question? Uh, I, I mean, and I find, you know, like, oh, it was good or, oh, I liked it or oh, I didn't really like it. You know, all of those are like, so reductive for the kind of really complicated, uh, you know, as the culmination of like several years of like thought and analysis. Um, I find any one of those answers so dissatisfying. Um, but here's what I would say about the final film. I was disappointed in this film as the conclusion of the previous two. I was disappointed at the number of questions that didn't get answered in this film. You may remember that Trish and Dave and I were having conversations in the last couple of weeks about this, and uh, each of us, you know, we were all kind of a little trepidatious about this film, 
and what we were worried about was how are they ever going to tie in all these things. And I remember Dave, you know, I know Dave's here tonight listening. I know Dave, you and I were joking about, um, you know, like, oh, how much time are they willing to spend in exposition, right? You know, because, like, that's uh, that's that's clearly one of the things that would need to happen in order to explain all these things. Um, and my fear was that this film was just going to be, like, incoherent. I mean, it was just going to be really uh, just hard to follow the plot from one end to the next because it, it was going to be sort of running all over the place trying to, trying to, to fill things in. And it avoided that evil by not filling things in really much at all. Um, and and it's... Uh, though, I, I would qualify that by saying I wasn't feeling that way in the theater. That is, I, I, I honestly did not leave the movie theater feeling like, oh, I'm so disappointed, or oh, like I... I, I didn't. I, 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 I enjoyed watching it. There were many things that I liked about it. Um, and that's what I was primarily thinking of. Um, it's only... It's almost like actually the exact mirror image of the reaction I had to the desolation of Smaug, where the first time I saw it, I was like, mm, oh, well, mm, and okay, and oh, you didn't, did you? And then the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. You know, I was like, okay, you know, this is, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot sort of not to like here, but I like the concept of what they're doing. You know, and the more I thought about it, the more I really liked it. With this film, it was almost exactly the opposite. Where I really, in, I, I, with some exceptions, the <laughs> sandworms being the biggest, most glaring one. Um, in general, I really liked, I really enjoyed watching the film, and I came out of the the film liking it more, I think, than I have any of the other of of of, of the three films. Um, and then, but then the more I've thought about it, sort of the more retroactively disappointed I've gotten about it. That is, the more I think about every single question that I had, um, and not just question that I bring to it from outside, questions that were raised by the earlier movies that just drop, completely drop. Um, and I guess in a sense it was sort of successfully dropped in the sense, again, that I wasn't confused over the course of the third film. I mean, I, I, you know, I followed everything fine and I didn't feel lost and, um, and I didn't feel angry or disappointed at the time. But again, the more I've thought about it, the more disappointed I've been. Let, let me give a few examples. Example number one, the Arkenstone. Um, again, those of you who have listened to the Riddles in the Dark podcast series know that, you know, we've been talking for a couple of years now, especially after the Desolation of Smaug came out. That was the real eye-opener, right? I mean, just remember sort of the evolution of the, uh, uh, of the Arkenstone story, right? Um, as it has come in the films. So in the first film, we, uh, th there was that line in, the, in, in, in Bilbo's initial voiceover prologue, right, of the history of Erebor, of the fall of Erebor, um, which sent up flag, you know, flags to so many viewers, right, that everybody was talking about after the first film, um, the mentioning of, of divine right, right, that, that the Arkenstone, that Thor took the Arkenstone and that, uh, you know, he held it to be a sign that his right to rule was divine. And everyone was like, whoa, that's kind of odd language to use of the dwarves and everything. But still, 
coming out of that, I was like, okay, but that's still, and, and it was clear that Thor was fixated on it and everything, but it just seemed like a jewel that he was fixated on, um, and that it had a symbolic significance because it was the king's jewel. Okay, I mean, that's what it sounded like until in the Desolation of Smaug, as you'll recall, when Thranduil says to Thorin, um, you know, you seek that which gives you the right to rule. And we were all like, whoa, okay, I guess there's more to this than just, like, Thor really, really liked it, right? Um, and then as they moved on into the mountain, it became clear that the Arkenstone was was the focal point of their entire plan, right? Um that the whole point is to steal the Arkenstone because with the Arkenstone they would be able somehow to unite the dwarves, right? You know, remember there's that business at the beginning and, and you know, this like in retrospect gave a new significance to that you know, to that moment in uh, Bag End back in film one where Thorin comes late to the party, right? Because he's been, you know, going to this like dwarf council and asking for help and he comes in and he's like, they won't come, right? Um, so they're going to get the Arkenstone and then the dwarves will come because, you know, by golly, he'll have the Arkenstone and somehow and for some reason as yet unrevealed in film two, this was going to affect the union of the dwarves who would rally about him. And as I said over the course of, you know, the last, um, you know, over the course of the last years, we've been talking about this. I, you know, although I was confused and remained confused about this, that is, I didn't really understand, does the Arkenstone have some kind of magical efficacy? You know, this was one of our riddles. We didn't know. Um, there, there were some implications that it had the actual power to do something. That it wasn't just a symbol, but that it, it could do something. Um... Okay, so uh, so we didn't know about that, but but nevertheless, despite my confusion that I was still living within at that point, um, I was willing to grant them. I was willing to forgive them that, in hope and trust that this would all come clear in the third film when the Arkenstone was obviously going to be so central. And uh, but in the meantime, I really liked the fact that they had made the Arkenstone the keystone of the plot because of, of their plan. That is of Thorin, uh, Thorin and Balin's plot. You know their 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 purpose in going to the mountain. Because indeed, I think as I sort of talked about in my book, this is a this is a this is one of the you can call it a weak spot. You can just sort of comedy even call it even just a moment of comedy in the book, right? I mean, in the book, it, it can't, you it can't deny the fact that the dwarves have no plan whatsoever. They don't have any kind of a good plan. Um, they don't have a kind of any kind of a plan, good or bad. They're going on the on a treasure hunt. What do they want a burglar for exactly? It is extremely vague. They don't seem to know. There seems in chapter one to be just the general sense. There's this dragon who has our treasure. We need a burglar. Why? What do burglars do? Burglars break into places and steal things and bring it out, right? So the the agreement under which he went along with him is to, to steal treasure from the dragon, like generally speaking. And of course, it's Smaug who makes rich fun of this idea, right? Not much good on the mountainside, right? I won't. What about cartage? What about tolls? Um, you know, and Smaug, of course, quite right to point out that the dwarves' plan, such as it was, was a completely empty-headed, bone-headed plan from the beginning. Um, and they have not given the first thought to how they're going to get rid of the dragon. In the film, 
the dwarves have a better plan. It's clearly a better plan, right? It makes sense of the entire plot in ways that the book doesn't do, right? If the Arkenstone, in fact, has some kind of ability, one way or another, to unite the dwarf clans behind Thorin and therefore reestablish the dwarven kingdom and quite possibly bring all the dwarves together in an attempt to destroy Smaug and retake Erebor, that's worth doing, right? That sounds like a plan, and so you would want a burglar. And a burglar sneaking into the mountain to steal the Arkenstone, that's a plan that makes sense, right? I'm not, you know, it's not a foolproof plan, but it's, it's, uh, you know, miles ahead of Thorin's plan or, or complete non-plan in the book. So again, I liked it. And then in the third movie, what happens? Nothing. We never find out a blooming thing about the Arkenstone. He is reunited with Dan, who comes in from the Iron Hills, but he doesn't have the Arkenstone. I thought the Arkenstone was a prerequisite for him being able to call the the dwarves together, right? I mean, what was he like... What are we supposed to think? Like that, the messages he's sending to them, he's like, hey, Raven, you know, hey, Roach, uh, tell Dan I've got the Arkenstone. Just kind of fudge that bit, right? I mean, wh- I don't understand. I don't get it. That seems to be just in contradiction to what we were told in the setup earlier on, apart from the fact that we never see the Arkenstone do anything. Um, and the question is just simply flat ignored. Uh, that is, of what does the Arkenstone do, and what, and so I, 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 and again, this wasn't something that I was like burning up with when I was sitting in the theater. But as I've been reflecting on it, you know, I've, I've, you know, come to sort of the grim realization that at the end of film three, I am exactly as confused about the Arkenstone as I was at the end of film one or at the end of film two, and um, I, I don't, I don't, and and of course, you know, there's the question that a lot of people have. Uh, have uh, pointed out that, you know, we never find out what happened to the Arkenstone. You know, who gets the Arkenstone after after Thorin's death. Um, uh, you know, Carolyn was just saying that. I think a couple other people were also. Um, and, I, 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 you know, I agree. Obviously, we don't know the answer to that. But see, that detail doesn't bother me all that much because that has to me the feeling of a scene that may have simply been cut out and be put back in the... I hold out some hope. And by the way, one of the things that I'm doing, I promised myself that I would do this. Last year, um, in our discussions of the Desolation of Smaug, throughout the year, I kept finding myself saying, oh, but certainly they'll put that back in the extended edition. And I used to joke, you know, in the middle of last year about how long I was apparently expecting the extended edition of the Desolation of Smaug to be. But when it finally came out, I was very disappointed. But at that point, I couldn't remember all of the things, like the entire list of things. So I'm going to start a list, like like right now, like while I'm talking, I'm going to start a list. Every time uh, I say, like, this is, should be in the extended, this will probably be in the extended edition, or I hope this is in the extended edition, I'm going to write it down. So uh, I'm, I'm writing it down now. Where is the Arkenstone? That's one thing that I think could and should be in the extended edition. But, but my bigger point is, even if that is, 
even if there's a cut scene that will be put back in that has Bard coming and laying the the Arkenstone on Thorin's tomb or setting the Arkenstone into, you know, giving it up and having it set in stone in Thorin's tomb. You know, because remember the Arkenstone, the little Arkenstone hole, you know, the, the little mount for it on the throne um, is is wrecked, right? It has the big dragon claw through it. Um, so you can't just put it back there. Um, so, you know, do they make another thing on Thorin's tomb and we see we get a shot of the Arkansas on Thorns Tomb. I, I, I could believe that such a thing is in the extended edition. I don't know, but um, um, but 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 that, that it sounded to me um, that I wasn't surprised to find the ending kind of truncated in the way that it was. Um, in part because Peter Jackson got so much grief at the end of the Return of the King, you know, about the endings and stuff. Um, but anyway, I, I, you know, I. I uh, um, so it doesn't shock me that he didn't recapitulate that, um, even though I wish he would have, because I liked it anyway. And both, you know, I, I certainly liked it in The Return of the King, and I would have liked it better here. Um, but anyway, it doesn't surprise me that he that he changed that. But anyway, okay. But even if we get it, even if we get Thorin's funeral and the Arkenstone on his tomb, are we going to get an explanation? Are we going to get a reason for why Dan showed up without the Arkenstone? Are we going to get, um, are, are, you know, it just, again, that whole thing really seems, uh, really seems to simply have been dropped. Um, and, um, I see. Well, uh, Pierre Ingram asks a really good question. Pierre says, "What do I make of Peter Jackson's attempt to make the dwarves' plan more logical than in the book? Is it a sign that Peter Jackson thinks he's a better storyteller than Tolkien, or that he wants to change a children's tale into a more grown-up one?" Um, I mean, I don't know exactly what his motivation was, but I would say the effect, like when I compare the movie story, like that thread of the movie story with the book story. The primary difference I see is that the movie story is consistent from one end to the next. Um, and I don't mean that as an insult to the book. Um, it's one of the, it's one of the wonderful things about the book. It's, I mean, Tolkien hated The Hobbit. Well, I, that's strong language. Um, there's a lot that Tolkien really disliked about The Hobbit later on in his life. And one of the things that he disliked about it was the, the tone of the narrator, um, and the way and the, the, all the things that make it like a really charming children's book at the beginning, Tolkien really disliked a lot of that tone later on and wished he'd just been more serious about the whole thing from the beginning. But he wasn't when writing it. And it's one of the things that makes The Hobbit really delightful. I have always disagreed with the, uh, you know, 65-year-old Tolkien's, you know, retroactive assessment on The Hobbit. Um, But um, I... But it's pretty clear that Peter Jackson was wanting to make sort of, in that sense, the tone of this story consistent from the beginning. That is, instead of, um, instead of having it start off as this like fairy tale treasure hunt, um, comedic fairy tale treasure hunt, which is how The Hobbit starts out, and then it grows into something else by the end of the story, the, um, the Hobbit films were, in that sense, consistent in that tone. All the way through, um, uh, Drew Brandon asks: Doesn't Jackson consistently take all the dwarves' ridiculous out, ridiculousness out, to make them more epic and less bumbling? 
Yes, more epic and less bumbling, though not wholly unridiculous, right? Um, Jackson had, the, I mean, the films make lots of choices in order to keep the comedy in. Uh, and even comedy at the expense of the dwarves. The dwarves are still ridiculous, but they're not bumbling, right? They're funny without being incompetent. They're competent, but funny, right? Um, and that's what we see. Uh, and the tone for that is really established in the Chip the Glasses and Crack the Plate song in the first film, right? Um, but um, So they're still ridiculous, but you're right that they're not bumbling, and they're certainly more epic, and he maintains that sort of epic tone all the way through. Um, so, um, so Pierre, that's how I read that, you know, that it's, it's more consistent in that way, and the story, they want the story to be more consistent. This is why, instead of having, you know, a stuffy, stodgy Thorin who uh, is just wanting to reclaim his lost gold, um, without a word about the restoration of the kingdom or anything like that at the beginning of the Hobbit book. Um, you know, we get the Thorin leading a people into exile and him working at the forge and, you know, never to forgive and never to forget. And, you know, this like haunted brooding Thorin who want, who's trying to, you know, has this desperate desire to restore his kingdom and, uh, and return, uh, you know, the, 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 their, his people to their home and all these things that, stuff is there. I mean, it's, it's, that's what Tolkien came to emphasize later on when he, um, was himself sort of raising the epic tone of the whole story. In the quest for Erebor, that is the Thorin that we get. That's, that's Thorin's outlook from the beginning. Um, but that's not what it was in, in, in the thirties when he was writing The Hobbit. And that's not the way that the published Hobbit comes off. Um, so yeah, so Peter Jackson varied from the published work. But again, he didn't just make stuff up out of nowhere. Um, he brought it in from lots of other places, like the books he's not officially supposed to be uh, using. Um, which I... You know, which is what it is. Um, but anyway, uh, so, so yeah. So, I mean, that seems to me what he was doing. And that's fine. I don't really have... Um, um, I, I, don't, I don't really have a problem with that. But what I do have a problem with is them just dropping it in the th in the third film. And here's the thing that strikes me as really odd. It's not just that the Arkenstone was dropped. It's the way that the Arkenstone is dropped. Did you notice what happened in the third film? In the third film, the Arkenstone became the book Arkenstone. And all that happens to the Arkenstone, and the only role that the Arkenstone plays in the third film is exactly the role it plays in the book. It becomes the crowning um, the crowning point of Thorin's dragon sickness, right? Um, you know, the ultimate expression and ultimate focal point of his dragon sickness. Uh, and, uh, you know, the gem that he... And him beginning to cast suspicious eyes on on his uh, loyal companions. This happens in the book, too. And, uh, and then, you know, in the exchange with uh, Bard and the Elven King, and even, you know, they quote lines from the book, right? Bard asking him, how is it yours to give? And, and all that stuff. And then, the, you know, even... You know, getting Bilbo back up there for like the descendant, he didn't call it, he just called him a rat and not the descend, a descendant of rats. But anyway, we got the descendant of rats moment. He's about to throw him off the wall. And uh, they did almost everything like in the book. And now all of a sudden, the Arkenstone is back to simply being, uh, um, to simply being a, a bargaining chip. Um, and, uh, um, 
you know, it, it's, that's fine. I mean, but notice what I find the problem is then. Here I find myself saying, my biggest problem with the third film is it stayed too close to the book, <laughs> right? Um, what I'm objecting to is the fact that they they did they just did the book plot there, um, and in fact in a lot of places, and um, and it didn't exactly work, you know, um, uh, and uh, that is uh, let me back up and emphasize what I mean by that. What didn't work is that it didn't fit with what came before. A couple of you are telling me, but I haven't gotten a chance to listen to Philip Boyan's interview with Empire Magazine. Um, uh, but a couple of you have mentioned it. Timothy Fisher was just saying that uh, Boyan's, you know, says that the Arkenstone doesn't have a special power, but is symbolic of kingship. Um, in which case, I say to Philip Boyan's, shame on you. That was terrible writing in the second film because the things that were said about the Arkenstone in the second film, especially in the second film, um, gave gave explicit suggestions to the contrary. Um, and it's it's not it's it's not the crown of the it's not just the crown of the Thranduil doesn't speak of it as if it is merely the crown of the treasure, as if it's merely a symbol of his kingship. Um, that that's not the role that the Arkenstone has. If that's the case, then guess what? The dwarves' plan in the film is every bit as illogical as the dwarves' plan in the book. If the Arkenstone has no point other than it's a really, really precious jewel that Thorin loves, and again, it's not that I mind that, that's the book answer, right? That's that's. Um, but if that's the case, then what was the point? Of stealing, what is going to be accomplished by stealing it? Um, it, it? It's, it's again, it's totally that it's totally unclear to me, um, uh, and nothing is affected or would have been affected by it. Um, uh, yeah, but Timothy, no, and it's not a crown that conveys kingship. It's a symbol of kingship, and that's a different thing. They spoke of it in the second film as if it would convey it. In fact, that's the language that Thranduil used. But a symbol doesn't convey kingship. Um, you don't, you don't, you're not a king because you have a crown on your head. A crown is put on your head because you are the king, right? Otherwise, the king's jester who goes and capers about in a crown is king. And he's not, right? It's not the way that symbols of royalty work. Um, it works the other way around. Whereas in the second film, the entire premise of the plot to go in and to have Bilbo go in and burgle the Arkenstone seemed to be the implication throughout that second film was that it actually conveyed the right to rule in some sense, and that's not how it worked. Um, and um, yeah, uh, Brendan is quoting it: "You seek that which would bestow upon you the right to rule." That's what Thranduil says. And as Brendan Loy points out, it was not only in the second film, it was in the trailer for the second film. Um, it was really, it was really central. Yes, that would bestow upon you the right to rule. Um, as Sharon Hoff says, they set the Arkenstone up to be like one of the elven rings, inherent with some kind of power to rule. Absolutely, they did. Um, and, uh, anyway, so, so that's, that's, um, uh, that's that's yeah again that, that's symbols 
are symbols. They are not the essence. Um, you know, whenever anyone talks about fighting over the crown, they are using synecdoche. It's they're speaking metaphorically. It is not literally over the crown. Anyone can have a crown. Anybody who has gold can make a crown. Um, anyway, I, it's just uh, my point is simply this is why I think the Arkenstone storyline failed. You know, whether it is that there was more to the Arkenstone and they didn't convey it. If there was nothing, in fact, like, I mean, I'm willing to take Philippa Boyens at her word if that's what she says, in which case I like it less. Um, I like it. I like the idea that there was more to the Arkenstone, but they didn't convey it in the third film. That makes me happier than the idea that there was never anything to it at all. Because not only does that undermine everything that happened in, you know, those, you know, all the those references in the first two films, it, to me, again, it undermines the entire plot. It undermines the entire point. Um, and anyway, so that's, that's, um, I, frustrating. Really frustrating. Um, and, uh, and again, I was, I was, I was so, I mean, as you guys know, I'm so, I was so willing to go along and, uh, be along for the ride with that. I was ready for, I was ready for anything with the Arkenstone. I was ready to, to discover any kind of power that it had. Um, Anything, I would have accepted anything that would have made sense of those lines and worked as the plot, you know, had they stolen the Arkenstone. But again, now I look back and I'm like, what would have happened had Bill would just given them the Arkenstone? You know, I mean, like, again, if, if the, you know, they have a plan, what, what did success look like? Well, okay, uh, dragon's still alive. Um, there's, uh, you know, hundreds, you know, millions of tons of gold in there, um, which we can't still get access to because, you know, live dragon. But, um, we've got a, we got the Arkenstone, so we're good. Like, let's retire. Like, now I'm king, hooray, because there's still a dragon that, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't see it. I don't get it. Um, and, and I don't believe that that is going to be, um, uh, I don't believe that that is going to be revealed in the extended ed- edition. I just don't. I don't think it can be revealed. It's too big. It's just too much. Um, another point uh, that, uh, it's not Sparrow. I thought, I thought it was Sparrow. G? Sparrow? Uh, I, I, is it Sparrow? Is it Great... Is it? Is it Grayson Sparrow? I'm trying to understand the G. Uh, but anyway, um, that person who may or may not be Sparrow <laughs> says um, that there's no explanation of Gandalf's having Radagast's staff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there were several things that Jackson himself made a big deal about. Like, personally, in interviews after the second film, um, Remember uh, when, I think it was Jackson, was it Jackson or was it Boyens, I might be confusing, um, who said, you know, made a cryptic reference to the end of the desolation of Smaug and saying, um, yeah, Gandalf will get a new staff and we'll see the beginning of that process at the end of the desolation of Smaug, which was, of course, a reference to the destruction of Gandalf's staff in his confrontation um, with uh, with the necromancer. Okay, Um so of course we were all like, ah, all right, um, okay. Uh, Gandalf's staff is destroyed. 
um, you know, many people had observed, you know, careful film viewers had noticed that the staff that Radagast had was uh, the staff that Gandalf was using in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so, uh, you know, someone's like, okay, so he's going to have Radagast's staff. And were there any of us who weren't saying like, well, obviously there's a story there, right? Uh, there's got to be some explanation for how Gandalf got Radagast's staff and not only used it, but kept it, apparently, like, in perpetuity. He still got it, you know, 60 years later in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and nothing. Nothing. Never a word about that. Um, yeah, Daniel Bear says, in the in the commentaries, they both said that getting a new staff was an important point. Yeah, I, I, I haven't watched the commentaries. Um, I kind of feel like I should, but in some ways I don't want to. Um, but anyway, yeah, exactly. And no reference. When did Gandalf even get it? When he hops in the... I'm trying... I mean, I was so expecting something. A scene. Something. Um, that it took me a while to realize. I'm like, wait, wait. Gandalf has a staff. Where did he get the staff? When did that happen? Um, I, uh, and... I don't even know. So, okay, I'm gonna, yeah, uh, Gary, you're absolutely right. I'm writing that. Um, where did he get Radagast's staff as something that had better be in the extended edition? Now, you're right that we could get a scene, right? A comparatively short scene in which Gandalf and Radagast have some exchange, which explains why Radagast is giving up his staff. Um, I would hope it would also include... Um, yeah, see, Chris, exactly. Chris says it would seem that Radagast would have to be dead for Gandalf to take his staff. That's what we thought, right? We've been predicting Radagast's death for years, and he turns out to be one of the two shocking non-corpses at the end of this film. Um, but it's not that I wish any ill of Radagast or have any particular objection to his survival on, uh, principle. Um, but I want some explanation about why he would give up again perpetually um, his staff. Um, that whole story, I mean, Radagast's entire... Not that Radagast had much of a character arc exactly, but um, what he does and where he ends up and what's... Uh, you know, Radagast was just sort of dropped. Um Ryan, yes, you mentioned another thing. Um, that Morgul blade that Radagast took from the Witch King and went back to Elrond's, uh, and Peter Jackson again said, like, watch out for that. That's going to come back when he made a big deal about the fact this is the same Morgul blade. Um, excuse me a second. <coughs> Sorry, I don't want to sneeze right into my microphone. Um, he made a big deal about the fact that that Morgul blade was the same one that um, that uh, the Witch King stabs Frodo with uh, on Weathertop in the Fellowship of the Ring film, and like, oh, that's going to totally, um, that that that's going to totally put, uh, 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 you know, it's, it's going to come back and play a bit. <laughs> what the heck? Uh, I mean, was he just? I mean, maybe Jackson's just playing with people. You know, maybe that's just a lie. Um, I, I mean, I'll add the Morgul blade to my list. In a sense, I don't 
I wasn't troubled about it. Um, in fact, I have to give Trish credit. Trish pointed it out to me. I hadn't been thinking about it. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, but I mean, once Trish mentioned it, it, it was, it was clear, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that was, uh, I was like, oh yeah, Jackson said that was supposed to come back. I was never particularly bothered because I didn't see what the point of it was in the first place, you know? I mean, like, I, I, again, off staff, that's important, you know, the whole Arkenstone business, that's important. Um, but the Morgo Blade thing, I never saw what the point, like, why, you know, when Jackson said, like, oh, that's gonna be important later, I was like, really? Why? Um, uh, I mean, again, presumably, the Witch King has to get it again, has to get it back somehow, because if he's going to go on to stab Frodo with it later on, presumably he has to have it again. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, Brianna Melvin makes a, a an apt point as always. She says these conflicting interviews and the less than satisfying final results uh, that were the films makes me wonder how many big revisions were happening on the script throughout the whole process. Um, yeah, not to mention the major disjunctions between trailers and films. Did you notice those again, by the way? Um, we didn't get anything that was quite the equivalent of Azog on the parapet from the second film, because that was like the the money shot in so many of the trailers. And then it was, we had the, 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 the sort of an extra taunting fact that not only did Azog not jump up on the parapet, but we got that exact scene of the parapet, except it wasn't Azog jumping up. He'd been CGI'd out in some new, you know, uh, red shirt orc was put in his place. Um, so that, uh, you know, there's nothing as funnier than, you know, there's nothing nearly as funny as that um, from the Desolation of Smaug in this film. But there were several things that were in the trailers that we didn't, that never happened in the film. In particular, do you remember, for those of you who, uh, yeah, Timothy, exactly, that's the one I was just going to, and, and Trish, both Timothy and Trish were remembering it, of course. Um, those of you who have borne with us through our three-hour analyses of the trailers may remember that, like, wagon thing that some of the dwarves, including, I'm pretty sure I recall Dwalin and Feely on it, was like careening down that ice channel with like wargs getting run over and and everything. Um, uh, um, yeah, we didn't get that right. Didn't it never happened? Um, when the four of them, Dwalin and Feely and Thorin and Kiwi, like rode their mountain goats up the mountain, which I really liked, by the way. I loved seeing the mountain goats jump. Um, that was fun. But anyhow, so, uh, uh, when they were up there, I was like, ooh, okay, so here's Dwalin and Feely and a couple others up on, on a high place. Maybe they're gonna, so that's probably they're gonna come down in that chariot wagon thing, and it didn't ever happen. Um, of course, we also, numerous times, got those shots of the dwarves riding their goat cavalry over the hill, right? With apparently the elves shooting at them, though I was suspecting at the time that that was an illusion, um, created by the juxtaposition of scenes in the trailer. No goat cavalry. We didn't get any goat cavalry. All we got was, an armed mountain goat spontaneously appearing when Thorin wanted to go up in the mountain, right? With not the faintest explanation of how on earth an armored mountain goat got there in the middle of the battle, right? Um, and, uh, uh, Timothy, you are absolutely right. I had forgotten that. 
But you're right. Did Gandalf in the theatrical edition say, how will this day end? As he did in almost every trailer. I think you're right, Timothy. He didn't, he didn't say that. Did he say that? I don't think he said that. Um, uh, I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable. But again, Brianna, I come back to your point. Uh, is there evidence that there were some major revisions going on? Quite likely, very much at the last minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A certain degree, a certain degree of evidence uh, of that. Um, uh, now, you know, I could get. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to throw stones there. Like stuff changes, things happen. I'm fine with that. Um, but um, but it it certainly did create some problems. And Brianna, I, I think the the script was really uneven, um, and that I think got really hard um, in uh, in this last film. Um, yeah. Okay. Good. Both. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Dave says he just finished watching it again, and he didn't say it. Okay. Good. I didn't think he did. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, yeah, Anastasia, I also did notice that Dwalin disappeared in the battle on Ravenhill. Um, I was thinking for a minute, I was like, whoa, is he going to kill off Dwalin too? I mean, because like, yeah, Fiori and Kiwi, Dwalin and Thorin, who all went up, are all four of them going to die? Um, and when he vanished, I was kind of half expecting to, not to like find his body, but to, you know, for like Bilbo to find him dying or something. I mean, I was a little worried about dwelling there for a minute. Um, and then it just turned out he just like vanished and didn't appear until later on. So, okay, you know, whatever. I guess I didn't miss him that badly, but, um, uh, uh, but that was, um, um, that was a little bit sad. We did get Billy, Bill Connolly riding on a pig. I was a little disappointed in the pig. Um, I was theoretically okay with Diane riding on a pig. But I expected the pig to be not just like a domestic sow with a saddle on its back. You know, I was thinking boar. You know, I was thinking tusks. Uh, I was thinking war steed. You know, and I was... You know, I, it was, yeah, Sharon says it was a potbelly pig. Yeah, it was a potbelly pig. Um, um, the, I did not, that, that was odd. Um, but it was another moment of comedy. <clears throat> Might have been one of the moments of comedy that I disliked most in the whole trilogy, actually. Um, because of the way it undercut the moment. But, um, I have to add to my extended edition list. list. Hang on, I have to, I have to make a note here. Um, more werebear. I, perhaps you join me in thinking that five seconds wasn't nearly enough screen time for Bjorn. Um, and I was shocked. Shocked. I remember saying, 
two years ago, three years ago, that, like, well, one thing that's clear is, like, you know that Jackson is not going to lose the opportunity to do gigantic werebear, like, throwing orcs around, right? I mean, that's going to be awesome. Like, you know that Jackson is just going to play that up hugely. I couldn't believe that um, it was practically cut. Um, you know, that Bjorn got no really significant role in the battle. Um, and almost no screen time. It's like... I, um, it was... Um, that was hard. That was hard. Um, Daniel Bear asks, why was Bjorn important to the films? He wasn't important to the films. Um, uh... Now, <clears throat> yeah, well, I'll save that one. Um, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Spencer brings up Alfred in Alfred's comic scenes. I will confess something. I liked Alfred a little bit. Not a lot, Um he was way too extravagantly annoying. Um, but I liked what they did, especially at the end, and especially Bard's attitude to him. Um, I, um, I, I, you know, Sharon says Alfred was totally useless. I, I, I heard many people say that. I disagree. I actually strongly disagree with that. Let me explain. Um, you'll remember that in the book, the Master of Lake Town serves as a final sort of cautionary tale, right? Final cautionary tale about dragon sickness. And it comes, you'll recall, in the very end of the last chapter, during the little reunion at Bag End, you know, when Balin and Gandalf show up and they're hanging out with Bilbo and having tea at the end of the book. And <clears throat> Bilbo is hearing about how things have gone on in Dale, how Dale has been rebuilt and the valley is green again and everything is everything is just going swimmingly. Um, but of course, one little blot on this is the is the story of the master who caught the you know caught the dragon sickness is sort of said semi metaphorically, and he you know embezzled a whole bunch of the gold and ran off, you know, that was given to restore Lake Town, uh, and ran off but then, you know, died alone in the wilderness, abandoned by his companions. Um, and I was frankly relieved that the master of Lake Town died so quickly, um, because I found him extremely distasteful. Brianna says Alfred just kind of replaced the master. Yeah, exactly. That's the role that he plays. Um, and we see the way in which Alfred becomes more and more despicable. Um, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I think this was really well and elegantly done, because I don't think it was. Um, but, nevertheless, what was being done was Alfred, rather unexpectedly, serving as a kind of foil to Thorin himself. We saw in each camp somebody who had the dragon sickness, someone who was, 
and with Alfred, Alfred being the the target, you know, being invited to be the target not only of our ridicule, um, but of um, but of bar but of, but of our scorn, right? You know, just as we. Because with Thorin, our attitude towards Thorin's dragon sickness is mingled with pity, as you know we can see, like in 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 uh, um, you know in uh, in in Dwalin's tears, right? You know we weep with Dwalin over Thorin, who has fallen from what he was. Um, in Alfred, we see depicted the this is like the level of baseness to which Thorin would fall were he continued. This is the trajectory he's on. In fact, I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, um, there is one... They actually preserved Thorin. Um, he falls one step lower in the book than he fell in the movies. Um, that is into actually actual dishonest, sharp practice and double-dealing. Um, again, breaking his word. They made a big deal about how he's not keeping his word um, in the film, of course. But uh, but remember, he tries to think on the deal when he makes the deal to hand over, you know, a thirteenth part of the gold um, in exchange for the tri- for the for the Arkenstone. Um, but then we find that he's not actually intending to honor that deal, and he's hoping to just delay them until Dan comes. Um, you know, and he sent him word to to march through the night. Um, we don't see Thorin get a chance to actually try, you know, sharp practice with them. Um, and, um, uh, so, so yeah, I, I, um, I think that Alfred has an important role in the film. Um, I was afraid he was just kind of going to be kept around for an awkward kind of comedy. Um, but in the end, I didn't think he was. In particular, I thought he was he was sort of especially redeemed, despite the really bad lines he was given, um, in that final scene, you know, where the gold is spilling out of his dress and everything. Um, he is, uh, you know, we see him, uh, you know, an object of pity. Uh, uh, you know, he is, uh, you know... A, 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 a witless worm he has become, you know, uh, and it's, it's, you know, this, this, his cowardice and his greed, um, have made him, you know, less, you know, really less than, uh, less than human. Um, so anyway, I, I I thought, um, um, yeah, good. Uh, Alyssa House Thomas makes a wonderful point. She's one of the brilliant things was having Alfred avoiding battle with the women and children, a parallel to the emphasis on Thorin refusing initially to fight with his people. Yeah, exactly. Alfred serves as a as a as a foil to Thorin. That was my sense uh, going through. And unless I hadn't thought of that exact parallel, but you're absolutely right. It's a really strong parallel. Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, again, I don't think that. Um, I don't think that it was done well. And again, I found many of Alfred's lines really painful, um, really awkward. But um, but nevertheless, in concept, I actually thought that it worked really well and I quite liked it and was glad that they did it. Um, uh, yeah, Carolyn points out that the, uh, you know, when uh, they, when Bard stopped the lynching of Alfred, um, you know, that that was a, that was, that was an important leadership moment for Bard. Yeah, and, you know, even, I mean, I don't want to strain 
um, you know, this parallel too much. But there's even a little bit of like, um, you know, it was pity that stayed his hand, pity and mercy not to strike without need, right? I mean, there's 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 something almost of the sparing of Gollum in it. Um, you know, Alfred is uh, is 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 beneath contempt. Like, does he deserve punishment? Um, yeah, I mean, does he deserve hanging? You know, um, you know, does he deserve death? I dare say he does. Many live that deserve death. Um, uh, but anyway, it's it's I. I, I I certainly think that it isn't true that he has no role in the film and that he is completely superfluous. Not integrated in he was not in he was not integrated elegantly into the story, but he has a role in that story. And what that role was I liked. I really did like it. Um now Mark uh uh Brulette, is it? Is it? Are you? I don't. I don't know if you're American or if you're actually have a European last name. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name. Um, uh, Brulette, uh, to pronounce it in a slightly more French way. I nailed it the first time. All right, awesome. Um, anyway, Mark says I would be very interested to hear what I thought about the ham-fisted Lord of the Rings setup done at the end, especially in the Thranduil and Legolas scene. Um, the business with Aragorn. Uh, went on a little long for me. Um, I agree with that. But I liked that scene. That was one of my favorite scenes of the end of the film, actually. Um, One of the things... One of the things that I um, was worried about, um, and, you know, one of the questions I was asking going into the film was, what are they going to do with Randall? You know, what are they going to do with him? Um, and because in theory, I mean, if they keep the same trajectory as in the books, then we're all going to come out friends and allies at the end. And the trajectory that Thranduil was on, it's like, we're not headed towards, towards allies. And everything that we saw in the trailers suggested that largely through the course of this film, he was going to keep heading on, I guess it's not this way. It's actually this way, right? Um, He's going to keep heading in that sort of disastrously antisocial way. Um, so then what? Are they either, A, going to just not reconcile him at all, right? Like, he is a jerk, he remains a jerk, and everybody hates him, and so the, you know, the peace between the mountain and the woods is really uneasy. The end. Like, that was one possibility. Another possibility was that some kind of respect and alliance was going to be created over the course of the battle. Um, and I was worried about that one. That's the one I expected to happen, but I was worried about it. And what I was worried about was some kind of hokey, to use your word, Mark, ham-fisted sort of like conversion moment, you know, um, for Thranduil, right? You know, when he's like, I now realize, you know, not that he would say this, uh, but maybe he would, you know, like, oh, I now realize that I've been a terrible jerk and I must change my ways and I'm now going to go and like heroically save somebody that, you know, like save Thorin or something like that. Um, and I, 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 anyway, so I was worried about Thranduil's character and throughout the film, I was like, where are we going with this? Where are we going with this? I liked the ending. I liked what they did with the ending because there is one plausible way to 
jerk somebody out of that trajectory. When somebody is like being a jerk and they've got like the bit in their teeth and they are determined uh, to be a really big and an increasingly big jerk, um, one thing that can really shake them is loss, is tragedy. And Legolas's rejection of his father, his initial, um, you know, breaking of his father's will, but then much more important, the fact that he then finalized it, saying, I'm out, I'm leaving, I'm not going home. Um, you know, I reject you and your policies, and, you know, I consider my, you know, he doesn't say I consider myself exiled from the kingdom, but, like, I want nothing more to do with you. Um, that seemed to, I mean, I, I believe that we are, um, supposed to understand, um, that, uh, that, that really shook Thranduil. And I think the only scene we get from him, Thranduil, that is, after that, is the scene with Toriel at the end. And I, my, I'm, I've only seen it once still. Um, but my reading of that scene on my first viewing was that we are seeing genuine change in Thranduil. Um, that he has been kind of brought to his senses or, or sort of his eyes open or, you know, his foundations shaken some by, um, the stable and permanent rejection of him that, uh, um, that Legos has just done. And I thought that was, um, I thought that was a good move. I thought that was really well done, you know, especially when, um, we were given, um, you know, given to understand, hey, this made the short list of things that were kind of vaguely hinted at in the earlier films that we actually learned some more information about in the third film, namely those gems that he wanted. Um, and they all but came out and said that, of course, those white gems that he wanted back so very much from the mountain were the only keepsake that he had of his wife. And that seemed to be what was obviously being set up in that scene when Legolas was like, you know, there is no grave, there is nothing left of her at all. And it's like, ah, right, yeah, okay, yeah, the white gems, you know, and especially when... Um, when uh, Thorin is holding it up, right? Um, and it's, it's, um, it's, you know, you can, it, it looks like um, an elf woman's headdress. And um, anyway, so I, that I think was, was, but, but again, so here he's fixated on these, uh, on these gems because of his loss, because of his grief for his wife. And, all that he has left, he does have something else left of her, right? Other than those gems, his son, Legolas. And now he's lost his son, Legolas. And the recognition of that, like, maybe I can regain, I can regain the gems now, but now I've lost my son. Um, that seemed to be like, can I, am I willing to believe, you know, sort of emotionally invest myself in the idea that that could shake even such a colossal jerk as Thranduil? Out of his, uh, you know, out of his his mindset. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'll I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Um, and Mark, you're right. We see that loss as Toriel mourns, and the way that he relates, the very, very, very different way in which he relates. And I don't just mean different from the drawing a sword on her earlier on. I mean like in the way different from the way he um, treated her in the second film. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's. Uh, it's a significant change. And again, and I buy that. I'm totally, I'm totally fine with that. And I thought that, so basically I thought the Thranduil character arc 
had a much more satisfying resolution than I was hoping for. I was really worried that it was gonna it was gonna be um, really dissatisfying, and it and it it didn't. Um, uh, I didn't find that um, unsatisfying. Uh, Brendan was asking about the connections, and you know, Mark, thinking back to the other thing you were saying about the uh, the connections to the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, I was thinking about this earlier today too. I don't think it explicitly contradicts what happens in the films. Remember, in the Fellowship of the Ring film, Legolas show the first time we meet Legolas is when he's like getting off his horse, right? He's showing up at Rivendell, he's getting off his horse. Is it ever? I don't remember it ever being explicitly said that he was there as an emissary from Thranduil. Um, that's said in the book. I don't think that was said. Um, in the, uh, um, in the film, I mean, he's like of the woodland elves, but, um, he's, uh, uh, but it doesn't say that like Thranduil sent him. So it's not in that sense, uh, a contradiction. Um, and it does explain something which was puzzling in the Lord of the Rings films. That is, um, I mean, it's something that, it's something that people who didn't know the books were able to kind of take in stride without really thinking about it. But I know I kept asking, and probably many of you were asking too, when the Lord of the Rings films came out, like, why are Legolas and Aragorn like buds? You know, when did they become old pals? Um, well, okay, there we are. Um, apparently they're old pals. Um, so, you know, again, so they're... From from the standpoint of film consistency, I was like, all right, you know, I can, that's fine. I can, I can, I can get behind that. Um, but um, anyway, uh, I brought up Toriel, so I might as well talk about her. Needless to say, uh, as will shock none of you, I was shocked by Toriel's survival. But, um, and you know what, I, you know what, you know what I thought? The first thought that crossed my mind when I realized that Toria was actually going to survive was Laura Burkholz is so winning the riddle game this year um, because <laughs> Laura had the great wisdom to answer the book answer most of the time. And as is almost, as has been the case in every single film, the answer tends to be the book answer more often than not. Um, and this, it's something that people keep overlooking. You know, people keep fixating on how the scope of the films is altered from the, you know, is moved away from the 1937 Hobbit. But yet, so much less is changed than it might have been, even arguably than it should have been in some cases. Um, but um, who dies? Thorin, Fiwi, Kiwi. Nobody else. Um, amazing. Uh, amazing. The people who died in the book died. Nobody else died. Um, Brendan Loy, uh, suggests that Toriel survives so she could be tragically killed off in the forthcoming Legolas trilogy. Um, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, and, uh, 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 who is, who is that who is, uh, who is listed under 
waiting for name. That's normally what happens when you first log in, but normally it allows you to put in... Did you put waiting for name as your name? Uh, so anyway, whoever... Our mystery guest uh, was also saying the same thing, that now Toriel's available for a potential bridge film. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I... Uh, Oh, what a fascinating observation, Kate. Kate Neville says, It's kind of funny that the Legolas Toriel Kiwi Triangle ends up following a dwarvish cultural pattern. Dwarves who don't marry because the female they want doesn't want them, and the dwarf women who go single because they don't get the dwarf they want. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how we're told it works in in dwarf culture, right? And that's exactly how the Legolas Toriel Kiwi thing... I never thought of that, Kate, but that's, that's, that's fantastic. I love that. Um, yeah, uh, Brianna is wondering if in the extended edition we're going to get Toriel wandering in the woods for a year before lying down on a mound and dying. Um, uh, possibly. Um, I'm going to put on my list here more Toriel. Um, but, but I don't think it's necessary. I, I, I liked the end. Um, and, uh, um, I hadn't been. I, this wasn't my very first thought when I saw it. Uh, I have to. I have to give props to my uh, uh, to my nephew Dylan, who saw the movie with me. Um, and Dylan asked me uh, right after. You know, we were sort of standing in the lobby talking about the film right after it finished. Um, and he said, uh, "You know, do you think the implication there at the end was that um, was that Toriel's gonna was gonna go to the Havens?" Um, and I was like, you know. I don't know, but I like that. Um, yeah, Sharon, she has to return the runestone to Kiwi's mom. Well, she put it back in his dead hand. Um, is she going to bury it with him? Is it going to be on his uh, tomb like the Arkenstone is on Thorin's tomb? Uh, I don't know. But anyway, um, I like that. You know, that, that you know, her, her sort of question about, like, you know, where, though, again, the lines weren't particularly well written, but uh, nevertheless, her sentiments about her grief and, you know, how can her grief find an end? And of course, we got there a glimpse of, of course, exactly why these, you know, these uh, love relationships between immortals and mortals are not a good idea and often end in tragedy. Of course, I'm thinking in particular, um, not of Baron and Luthien, but of... Uh, um, of uh, of of Andreth, and oh, blanking. Which one of Finrod's brothers was it? Um, uh, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Gosh, it's late. Um, Agnor, Agnor. Ah, oh, phew. Ah, oh, um, Agnor. Yeah, it was Agnor. Um, okay, Angra, uh, Agnor, and. Uh, Andreth, uh, in, uh, in the, the, uh, the, the Athrabeth, um, in Morgoth's Ring, the debate between Finrod and Andreth. Um, uh, there we get it most clearly that, like, what, you know, what happens to, and of course, the, you know, the inevitable, you know, wh why those, why love between those, the, between a mortal race and the, uh, and the elves almost never ends well. Um, because of that, you know, now she, who is immortal uh, and is going to endure as long as the earth is going to endure, is never going to be able to get rid of that sadness, except maybe 
maybe there is a place where grief can be healed, right? And it recalls the end of The Lord of the Rings, of course, when um, Frodo has been wounded and needs healing um, and goes off. So I, I, um, I kind of like that. Actually, um, and I love Dylan's idea, my, my nephew Dylan's idea, and uh, and I decided that whether or not Philip Avoyance and Peter Jackson meant that, that's what I was going to think about it. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, so I thought th- I thought that was uh, I thought that was that was interesting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, person who may or may not be Sparrow says, uh, I thought the point of Toriel was to make her the agent of change, to make Legolas the kinder, gentler version, uh, you know, like, kind of, you know, the setup for what we see in The Lord of the Rings. It's still possible, but it seems her death would have been more impactful on Legolas. Well, that's exactly, that was, to me, that was like the core argument for her death from the beginning, um, was that I was expecting that it was her death that was going to have one kind of impact or another on Legolas. Um, uh, and it makes his decision to leave. I find it even more moving that that he recognized it, right? You know, he was so disapproving of her, you know, thing with Keely, um, and with clearly like had no tolerance for it, um, and disapproved of it, um, and wanted to stand in the way of it earlier on. Then, you know, when he sees her mourning over Keely's body, he lets her go. Um, and, you know, goes off into solitary exile. I liked it. Um, I, I actually thought that, um, the end of Legolas's character was, like, way less annoying than I could possibly have imagined in that way. Um, though I have to say, even I who enjoy action movies and quite liked many of the ridiculous action sequences in the earlier films. Um, I love the barrel scenes, uh, even like the, the, with the wildly improbable battle action. And, uh, I love Bomber's Barrel. I, I laugh out loud every time I watch it. Um, I, I love it. Just, I just, I just, I, you know, I, I could eat that scene on toast, but even I found the, like, continual improbable Legolas stunts to be tiresome uh, long before the end of uh, long before the end of the film. Um, but, uh, anyway. So, so so much for Toriel. Someone was asking me about the White Council arc. There it was. Cynthia. Uh, I knew it was somebody I knew. Cynthia Smith was asking what are my thoughts on the White Council arc? Um, and, uh, <laughs> Kate Neville says, jumping the shark is now officially going to be called riding the bat. Um, yeah, something like that. Um, I, okay. Um, I, the White Council arc. Here is my pictorial representation of the White Council arc. It's like, I would have liked to return to it. Um, I haven't the faintest idea what was going on with Galadriel. Um, Some people have asked me 
was I glad to see Galadriel be all empowered and everything? You know, to see Galadriel kicking butt? Well, yes, in theory, or yes, in principle. Not so much the way it came in. And Sharon, you're absolutely right. Making a note to myself. Um, White Council wrap up. I, you know, of all of the extra endings I was expecting to get, I didn't expect a lot of detail of the return journey, but a stop at Rivendell might have been nice. Little, little wrapping up of the Sauron conversation might have been, might have been a good thing. Maybe a little closure on what exactly is going to happen there. Um, uh, Maybe. We didn't get that at all, and I was pretty confused. Um, why Goadriel had to... I don't get it. I don't understand. I just... I don't understand what's supposed to be happening there. Um, and my lack of comprehension is pretty... I mean that on a really simple level. I'm not saying, like, I disagree with their decisions and don't really understand what motivated them to make the particular... I literally don't get it. Are we to understand by, like, her getting all black and dark and everything that she was exerting some kind of questionable or evil power? different from her radiant white light look. Um, she looked kind of, though not exactly like, the, you know, uh, all shall love me in despair scene from from Fellowship of the Ring. Um, if so, why? How? I, what? The, um, I don't understand. Um, are, was this Goadriel exerting a kind of power that she's not supposed to... Was this transgressive in some way for Galadriel? I mean, was El, are we, was Elrond standing in the back being like, oh, she shouldn't have done that. That was dangerous. That was wrong. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, we didn't see him do that. But, um, but it's that way. You know, all that was said afterwards was, you know, when Saruman says, like, she's drained her strength. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that looks pretty tiring. But um, is that it? It was just like the extremity of the release of her power. But if so, then why did she look like that? I, I, I mean, like, I, I mean, I genuinely don't understand um, what was going on there with her. And, and I'm only referring to the visual representation of Galadriel during that sequence. During that sequence, of course, it will not surprise you that all I could think of, um, juxtaposed on the image of, like, uh, you know, Verdigris dark Galadriel, was that freaked out Galadriel Lego face on the back of the Galadriel head uh, in the Galadriel figure in the Lego set. That's what I was totally thinking of. Um and I was like, now I now I see what they were going for. In that, in, in retrospect, you know, at the time, remember, I was like, what the heck? Like that. Now I get it. It, it couldn't possibly that the Lego people's choice couldn't possibly make more sense. Peter Jackson's choice still, I need still need explanation of. 
Um, but um, anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't understand. Brendan was asking what was it that sapped her power during the earlier part of the scene after she retrieved Gandalf and before she recovered her strength and turned into all shall love me and despair Galadriel. I'm not sure, Brendan, but I think we're supposed to understand when she kissed his forehead, she revived him, right? She kisses his forehead and he, like, breathes. Um, So I'm uh, understand Healing Gandalf, Chris, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Um, Yeah. Um, I'm making another note, Mark. Mark says, uh, they also missed out on the Saruman leave Sauron to me potential. I didn't realize when we got that in the trailer that that was it. That we were never returning to Saruman ever again in the film. So, Mark, I'm making a note on my extended edition list. Uh, and my note is going to be Saruman and Palantir. Because, okay, although they dropped the White Council like a hot potato in this film... Nevertheless, I kind of liked what I took to be the Saruman trajectory. Now, one of the deeply misleading things, as shouldn't surprise us at this point, about the trailer and the way that the leave him to me, I shall do with him myself thing that Saruman does was put into the trailer, was the implication was he was going to take upon himself the driving off of Sauron. Right. So in our discussions, we were anticipating, is there going to be a conversation between the two of them? Are we going to get a come to the dark side moment, you know, uh, with Saruman and Sauron? No. What we didn't know in the trailer, that when Saruman says that, he's referring only to the tracking of Sauron, the, like, where'd he go? What's he doing now? And Saruman's like, I'll find out. Leave it to me. And I liked that. Because where it seems to be pointing, though we're not told, is Saruman's like, hmm, I have a Palantir back in my tower. I'm, I think I'm going to break out that thing and dust it off and find out what's going on. So the plot does, in fact, seem to be laid, right? That, okay, maybe we're supposed to understand that Saruman is still good, annoying but good, um, at this point in the, you know, in, 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 in Jackson's chronology. But now he's going to go and he's going to use his Palantir to try to seek out Saruman and that's when he's going to be ensnared and that's all going to happen. That makes sense. I can buy that. Um, would have liked something more than just that statement alone. Um, but, but it doesn't make my top five like most things I was outraged they didn't explain or come back to. Um, uh, so, but anyway, you know, it was, it was, it, it, it was certainly there. Um, some kind of assessment of the, of the, of the situation at the end, you know, of like the larger Middle Earth situation at the end would have been nice too, but again, that's why I would have enjoyed a trip to Rivendell at the end, even if only a brief one. <clears throat> in order to finish up some of those things and get a little bit of the exposition that I was really quite looking forward to. Um, yeah, Sharon says, the lack of the dwarves' funeral. Okay, yeah, I'll put that. It's kind of like the Arkenstone question, but uh, but yeah, the dwarves' funeral. It's like, farewell, Thiwi, we barely knew ye. Um, and by the way, that was the only thing that was shocking to me. 
was not the mere fact that Fiwi died. Um, of course, I wasn't really shocked that they actually stuck to the book in that way. But the manner of Fiwi's death, I was quite a surprised that they actually just... Um, uh, that they actually... Uh, uh, when, when Azog is holding him up and is like, I'm just going to kill him, I'm like, all right, some improbable, like, he's going to twist around and knock or somebody's going to, or Keely from down below is going to, like, throw his sword an improbable distance, or, you know, I was expecting some kind of, even though, I mean, it's not that I was, I was, I was, you know, I wasn't and would not have been shocked had Keely ultimately died, but not like that. I was surprised that he was just, you know, hanging up and then just stabbed in the back and dropped and killed. Um, that, that surprised me. Um, yeah, uh, as, uh, the wereworm of the last desert says, uh, Fiwi and Kiwi were not defending Thorin's body in battle. That really would have been better. I was okay with Kiwi. I was, you know, doing the Kiwi Toriel thing. I was, I was, I was okay with that. But yeah, Fiwi, Fiwi's death seemed unexpectedly senseless in that way to me. Um, yeah, it, it was an ignoble death. Chris, I agree with that, um, with that expression. Um, uh, yeah, Brendan says, uh, added to the extended addition ed- list, who, who the heck becomes king under the mountain? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is, as Brendan says, obviously it's Dan, but the movie doesn't say or even hint at that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, who is king under the mountain next? Yep, I agree. Some kind of, uh, some kind of hint and closure to the gem scene. I mean, I I thought it was kind of clever all along the way in which, and because you'll remember in the book, Bilbo gives a gift of a white gem, um, you know, a necklace of white gems uh, to Thranduil, uh, to the Elven King at the end as a gift to pay, you know, to repay him for his hospitality. Um, and I, you know, I I always kind of liked how they seem to have taken that necklace of white gems and made it into this like more central plot thing. Though the whole like wife angle wasn't hinted at until this the last film. Anyway, I kind of like that, but you know, some kind of uh, reconciliation, you know, some kind of uh, 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 wrapping up of that. Is he? ever going to get them back? Even if, again, having lost Legolas, like, having him get a, get them back at the end would be even more powerful, right? To be like, here, see, look, now you can be happy. You've got your gems back, right? Go, go now and be happy without your son, Thranduil, right? I, I, that, I think, you know, I think that would have been great. You know, I think that that would have been, um, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, but but it you know and even to to have put that into the hands of Bilbo again to have Bilbo be the one who restores his gems to him um, like it did in the book you know I don't know like I I, I would have liked that but um, you know I uh, again that didn't seem to me the most um, uh, the most glaring omission in the uh, in the theatrical edition. Um, Sorry, I'm writing on my list. Restoration of Thranduil's gems. Um, uh, Sparrow says, it seems like Bard's son should have had a laceration or two with Bard's black arrow technique. Yeah, the fleshing would have really probably cut into his shoulder there. Um, To me, 
the Black Arrow scene was was it was very similar to me as the River of Gold scene at the end of the second film. I'm watching the River of Gold scene, and part of my mind is saying that is so impossible. You can't ride a metal wheelbarrow down a river of molten gold and not be scorched to death. Um, I, you know, I, I, part of me was thinking that, but at the same time, I was like, the rivers are running with gold, and I loved the whole Golden King thing, like the symbolism of that and the way it worked with Thorin and Smaug and the Golden King, and uh, I, 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 you know, I was easily able to overcome um, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, my, my, my disbelief had to be bound and gagged for a little while, but I was fine doing that. Same thing with Bard, uh, and the shooting of the dragon at the end. Um, no, it, it is not possible for either any human arms to be strong enough to pull a mere bowstring back far enough to shoot uh, you know, a, a metal ballista arrow of that kind of weight with anything like enough force uh, to travel the distance that it... I mean, that's not possible. Even if any kind of simple bowstring would be sufficient to hold, you know, and, and, and wouldn't break. It was utterly impossible, physically, uh, the way it was described. But I didn't care. I loved it. I loved the scene with the, the 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 father and son moment and the restoration of the honor of the line of Girion. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Didn't care um, that I had again, once more, uh, feloniously to mistreat uh, my <laughs> my disbelief um, uh, in order to make that happen. But I was willing to do it, and I would do it again. Um, but uh, anyway. Uh, that's um that's fine that's fine um yeah sharon says that she uh she loved the fact that we got more smog speak yeah I, I i also did kind of like the way that remember you know and and because the way that smog talked to bart smog doesn't talk to bart of course in the book but had smog talked to bart that's the kind of thing he would have said right it was very, I, I thought it was uh it was excellently in character um uh in uh uh, in, you know, in, for, for Smaug to say what he said there. Um, um, Greg says, am I okay with a three film adaptation or would I prefer one film or two? Oh, no. Oh, goodness, no. Um, I would never want less. Um, my problem is still there isn't near enough time to do anything. Um, I, um, I, I, no, no. In fact, if anything, I am like more, Game of Thrones has sort of spoiled me. Um, not because, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't come as any surprise to any of my regular listeners that I'm not the biggest George R. R. Martin fan on the, in the world, um, either of the <clears throat> books or the TV uh, series, but the effectiveness of the TV series as an adaptation has totally spoiled me. And I now, um, uh, I now basically in general dislike the idea of adapting a book into a single feature film or even two feature films. It's just, it's just too much. It's just, especially when you've got, um, you know, a lot of stuff going on. I, I didn't, um, 
I didn't. Yeah, Lauren says he couldn't see. Uh, he couldn't unsee a contracted William Tell scene there. I, I know that's what I loved about it. I loved it had the. It had. I mean, uh, you know, the way that you did get that kind of folklore touch overlaid on it. I loved the William Tell thing. Loved it. Loved it. Just, I just. I just. It was my. It was one of my favorite parts of the whole film. Was the Bard and Bane thing. Loved it. Um, but um, but anyway, I I, I uh, um, I, no, I would never, I would never wish it shorter. Um, I certainly could wish that they had planned it as three films from the beginning. The shift in the middle seems to have really complicated what already has clearly been a very significant editing challenge, and um, not a challenge that was met with extraordinary and universal success. Um, and it, so again, certainly it did them no favors that they were trying to make that change midway through. Um, but no, in general, I am a huge fan of the serial, um, you know, the, in other words, the protracted multi-part, um, let's do this over a whole, you know, 10 episode season, maybe multiple, you know, 10 to 15 episode seasons. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think, that's that's the way to go. We've said this, you know, we were saying this in our podcast just last week. When um, the next Lord of the Rings reboot happens, you know, which should probably be within 10 or 15 years, um, and I'm just guessing here, you know, I mean, like, just based on the way that Hollywood seems to be doing things these days, um, I certainly hope that um, that that uh, um, that that that's how they do it. Um you know, I, I think that the Lord of the Rings would be so much better um, if it were. I think didn't I suggest in the last podcast episode that I would like to see that in like six seasons, right? One for each book, right? Ending at Rivendell at the end of the first season, ending, uh, you know, uh, at uh, uh, Tolbrandir at the, you know, the 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 end of the second season. I mean, I think that the six books could really work very well. Um, um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, and, and yeah, yeah, not a big fan of the. Uh, Let's try to squeeze it into a three or four hour film, even three or four hours. Um, uh, ben uh, Bassett asks my thoughts on Mount Gundabad. Uh, well, my primary thought is that apparently Mount Gundabad, like everything else, is only about 15 miles away, fortunately, because you can get there and back in less than 24 hours from Erebor. Um, but again, uh, you know, it would be merely churlish to complain about such a thing at this juncture uh in our reception of the Jackson films. Um I uh, I um I, this gets me into one of the last things that I want to talk about, which is okay, like the reference to Gun to Bad, I mean that's 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 there, um, you know the the dwarves the orcs rather the goblins coming down from from Gundabad you know under the leadership of Bolg made sense again that was a book moment right that was yet another touch that was taken you know more pretty much straight from the books um, though again utilized differently especially in conjunction with Azog's character but the whole Angmar business right is fine makes sense. Uh, I, I, especially at this juncture of Sauron's return, right? 
his you know the at, at the end of his Dol Guldur phase and before he begins the Morgoth phase, the reestablishment of the Kingdom of Angmar sounds like a move, a very logical move. I mean, you know, like they say, oh, you know, Angmar's going to rise again. I'm like, I'll buy that for a dollar. Like, I, you know, that sounds that sounds reasonable to me. Um, but um, this, of course, was another one of those things. Which the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, they really. Do. Yeah, Robert Brown tactfully says they're not the first to think of that. No, no, they aren't, are they? Uh, and of course, with all of the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings online stuff I've been doing lately, needless to say, Robert, I was thinking about that too. Um, but anyway, um, I... It, it, it's another one of those things that the more I thought about it, the more kind of disappointed I got in it, is that that to me, at the time, inexplicable quote from Gandalf that was repeated in so many of the trailers, you know, that, like, this is the final move in a master plan. And I was, like, all over eagerness to find out what the master plan was that, you know, I hadn't heard about, and that uh, I, I was like, I can't wait to hear this. And it didn't make a lick of sense when Gandalf explained it. I mean, his explanation fits in one sense. That is, if you ignore one thing, it made perfect sense. Oh, the strategic... You know, the enemy has always valued the mountain in its strategic position, right? As the gateway to Angmar will, like, kind of... But, I mean, I see what he means, right? I mean, it's... It was a strategic position. Gandalf in the books does talk about that in Appendix A. Um, had the mountain fallen, there would have been nothing between, you know, the the the, the northern armies of Easterlings that uh, that uh, that that Sauron brings into the west. There would have been nothing there to stop them. They could have rolled right around, you know, Mirkwood. I mean, there's the Wood Elves there, but um, but they didn't have to go into Mirkwood. They could have just gone around and then yeah, and then swarming down and 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 destroying Rivendell and the Shire and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's all true. But he already had the mountain. Smaug was there. It was like the entire speech that Gandalf made didn't um, didn't take any take into account at all that it was a strategic position that Sauron's allies already held. So why was he strategizing for it? I mean, that was exactly the objection that. You know, we've talked about so many times in Riddles in the Dark this year, um, especially lately when we were looking at the trailer and talking about this whole master plan thing. And we we're saying, like, what it makes no sense to think like Sauron saying, I shall finally release the. I've been building up these armies, I'm not going to release them to march on Erebor, where my ally Smaug lives and completely dominates the surrounding area. What were the armies in, supposed to do? Um, and we were all assuming that there was a, an answer to that. And the film gave no answer to that. Timothy Fisher says that Boyan says the master plan was to use the dragon and stop the dwarves from reuniting. What did they need an army for? To stop the dwarves from reuniting? The dwarves weren't reuniting. Um, you know, there was no reunion of dwarves on the offing when Sauron marched his armies out of Dol Guldur. Um, and indeed, you know, 
and one of the only things going to get them to unite would be an army of orcs marching to Erebor, but whatever. Um, it's, it's the master plan. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, so the armies plus the dragon were supposed to stop the, stop the dwarves, Timothy. Um, overkill? I guess? Uh, I mean, Smaug was fine. <laughs> you know, like, he, seriously, he was doing fine. Um, they can launch the armies and Smaug. Why do they have to march the armies to the mountain? Like, why, why not ma- launch them from Dol Guldur? I, I just, I, I, I'm sorry. It doesn't make sense. Um, it really, I, 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 I'm willing to, I mean, I don't think Philippa Boynes is dumb. I don't. I mean, I think she's very smart. She knows the books really well. Um, I would love to have a, you know, a, a, I would love to have a conversation. This is another reason why I'm never really eager to listen to or read interviews like this is that the journalists almost never ask the questions that I want to ask. So I never get from these interviews any satisfying answers to the questions that I really want to know the answers to. Um, uh, Andrew says the army, orc army could have been sent to further secure the area. From what? Like, it was pretty darn secure. There was nobody there. It was desolation and Lake Town, which Smaug could easily take out by himself and did. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, there's like the Bard incident. But again, nobody foresaw that. That kind of came out of nowhere. Um, uh uh, Timothy says the mountain is the rally point for armies from Dal Guldur and from Angmar. No, they're going the wrong direction then. They're supposed to be marching towards Rivendell and down the other way. So yeah, let's all come back to the mountain and then we'll set out again and like retrace your steps. Now granted, it only takes, you know, about 45 minutes uh, on foot to get to Gundabad. I, I, I get that. But, um, I, uh, but I, um, you're not going to convince me that that plan of let's march our orc army on the mountain, which is already held by the dragon, makes any sense. Because it doesn't make any sense. Um, and I was really hoping for a better plan than that, and we didn't get it. Um, so, again, I was just, I was, I was, I was disappointed. Um, Derek Morgan is asking about um, Gollum. Thoughts about the absence of Gollum. Um, again, he stuck to the book and never having him come back again. Um, uh you know, Derek is wondering if we're going to get Gollum. Uh, uh, Derek, I'll put him on my list. Um, Gollum? Are we going to get any more Gollum? Um, they said no in their interviews. I was willing to believe them, but again, my faith in that is a little bit shaken. Um, not that it was ever enormously strong to begin with. Um, I... Uh, It's a difficulty. But in fairness, it's a difficulty that's Tolkien's fault. Um, The difficulty is, it's very, very difficult to imagine Gollum, especially when you do it this way, when you tell the Lord of the Rings story first, and then you come back and you tell the Hobbit story, um, so that, you know, the Gollum that we met was so exactly the Gollum that we knew in the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings Gollum, you know, how far he travels and how indefatigably he pursues the ring, it is impossible 
to imagine that that golem is going to stay in his caves, being sad about losing the ring for decades. Um, it is 77 years in the book between when Gollum loses the ring and when, you know, we get Gollum recaptured by Aragorn and held prisoner by the Wood Elves and escaping and everything, all that stuff. I mean, it's more than 75 years. How is it that, I mean, Tolkien does brilliant retcon on Gollum in The Hobbit. You know, his revisions to the first edition of The Hobbit um, and how he made that work is, is, is brilliant. It works very, very well. This is one detail that doesn't really work well in Tolkien's reworking of The Hobbit material. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's genuinely a hole in the Lord of the Rings plot. Um, Gollum had worlds of time to track Bilbo down. And although Gandalf in The Fellowship of the Ring does say he did come out, and that he says he believes that, uh, you know, when Frodo asked, why didn't he pursue Bilbo further? Why didn't he come here? And Gandalf says, I believe that he meant to. But instead he gets diverted and goes south and ends up being captured in Mordor. But the time passage, 70 years, he's not been held captive in Mordor for that long. It took him a long time to come out of the mountains. Much longer than it seems really, um, uh, than it seems really plausible to believe that, uh, Gollum would actually wait, given what we know of him, given how we see him in the Lord of the Rings. Um, so yeah, it does seem like we would expect Gollum to do something more than just vanish. It is what he did in the books. Um, but, and it seems a little bit odd, it seems a little bit forced that we're supposed to just forget about Gollum. But again, that's, that one's not entirely on Jackson. Um, yeah, the awkwardness about the ring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, it's... Gandalf knew that he found the ring in Moria. I don't even understand where that came from. He he spent very little time with Bilbo. He knew. Um, okay, I guess. Um, uh, it seemed that they just dropped the ring thing. Um... It was just another one of those things. Again, we spent, they drew so much attention to Bilbo's relation, especially in the Desolation of Smaug. Um, they drew so much attention, um, to Bilbo's connection with the ring and its influence on him. Um, and we didn't, you know, we were trying to figure out where they, what are they going to do with this? Where are they heading? And the answer was nowhere. They just dropped it. Totally dropped it. Dropped it almost as hard as they dropped the Arkenstone. Um, I was disappointed. I was disappointed in that. I mean, I, I I didn't exactly like where it was heading because it didn't seem to fit. Um, that is, I didn't like the speed with which Bilbo appeared to be becoming corrupted by the ring. But why Bilbo is going to go on and be happy and peaceful with the ring for 60 years is hard to understand, and we're not given any help with understanding that. Um, and 
why Gandalf is going to let it go for 60 years, again, that's a Tolkien problem too, not just a Jackson problem. Um, but, I mean, are, are we really supposed to understand that Bilbo's feeble story about losing it and that he doesn't have it anymore really satisfied Gandalf? Uh, yeah, I mean, he does lie to him about the ring. But, like, seriously, Gandalf, if Gandalf saw through him before, he didn't see through that. I mean, that was a terribly transparent lie. Um, and you got to think... I mean, it's it's impossible to imagine that if Gandalf had the perspicacity to perceive that he had found a ring in Moria, surely he would see through that, or maybe notice, you know, when he saw him at other times, that, you know, he had it. I just, again, I didn't find it plausible. Um, anyway, um... Gandalf's lack of activity in the battle was a little bit odd. I mean, he was there, but he was—he did very little. Um, I'm not quite sure what I expect. Jessica asks if I enjoyed um, seeing the auction at the end. I did. I did. I liked the auction. Um, I loved Lobelia's hat. I mean, wow, Lobelia's hat. Um, Lobelia Sackville Baggins was awesome. Lobelia Sackville Baggins fulfilled my every wish, uh, for, uh, for, um, for Lobelia Sackville Baggins. Oh, Timothy, good point. Yes. Um, planting the acorn, which of course, needless to say, I am hoping and trusting is going to become the party tree. I, I like that. I, I, I like that a lot. Um, but yeah, planting the, let's, let's hope we see him plant the acorn. Um, uh, um, I like the auction. I was surprised we got so much of it. Even more than the auction, though, I loved the recapitulation of the walking through Bag End. All the critics complained and complained and complained about how slow it was in the first film, and uh, complained about Bilbo just like walking silently through Bag End and how boring was that. I loved that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in an unexpected journey. I think that they and Martin Freeman does so much, um, does such wonderful nonverbal acting, you know, nonverbal communication in that scene. We can see, you know, his own dilemma and what he's thinking. The way that that scene is really sort of the crisis moment for the Took versus Baggins thing that they've set up really well in earlier scenes. Loved that scene in the first film. Was really, really interested in the way that they recapitulated that with Bilbo's desolated home at the end, right? With just, you know, empty of furniture, with just trash lying around, um, you know, and I haven't even thought my way through it fully yet. I need to see it again and process it a little bit more. Um, but just sort of off the cuff, um, the way that we see him in the first film looking around at the comforts of his home that he loves and these things that he was so, um, that he was so fixated on that he was choosing instead of choosing adventure and, and seeing him mowed over and being willing to leave it all behind. Um, and then at the end, him returning home, right? He's finally come back home, um, you know, back to his hearth. And it's, it was like a little glimpse, a little preview of the end of the Lord of the Rings, right? Of the, of the scouring of the Shire that we didn't get, right? Um, you know, I, I couldn't, in that scene, I was hearing Sam's voice say, uh, you know, um, 
Well, no, I mean, I was, th- I was thinking of that conversation between Sam and Frodo um, when they come back to Bag End. Um, uh, you know, saying that this is uh, when Sam says it's was worse than Mordor in its way, and then um, Frodo says, you know, this is Mordor, just one of its works, right? Um, I was thinking, um, I was thinking of that, um, uh, you know, during that scene when he's walking around his his uh, his his now wrecked home, his now gutted home. Um, but you know, the way in which it all also kind of mapped onto his own state, you know, his own, like, it's not, he's not just going to go back to the way things were, right? He's got to, like, you know, rebuild his home, even the way in which it recapitulated Thorin's story. Remember, there was the parallel between his home and Thorin's home that was established in the first film, right? And, you know, Thorin regained his home, but it was empty and desolate, and he had to build it again. He had, you know, Bilbo returning to his phone, home and finding it desolate. I, I, I liked it. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I thought that that worked really well. So, so that stuff, um, I thought was, uh, was neat. Michael Dennis says, uh, I love that the auction notice gave us an actual timeline. Um, uh, it, the whole adventure, it does, does it say 13 months? Is that what it said? Um, you know, that makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, Michael says it helps to process how long it took since they did such a poor job of showing elapsed time throughout the three films. Yeah, Michael, my question is, where on earth did they spend 13 months? I mean, it took them a week to get from Bjorn's house to the mountain. It takes, you know, two hours to get to Gundabad and back. Um... Where are they supposed to have spent 13 months? Um, I, I mean, yeah, I know the auctioneer said it, Timothy, but like, in this, I mean, where was that time supposed to have elapsed? Um, we are kept abreast of the time, and it's sure, it's way shorter than that. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, and it's hard for me not to see that just as a kind of inconsistency. <clears throat> um, Michael Dennis points out that they left Hobbiton in May and arrived at the mountain in the fall. Uh, yeah, but they covered more than half the distance in less than a week. So that's what I don't understand. Like, where did the time go? Um, I, but anyway... Yeah. Uh, Brennan says the, the extended, the extended edition will show us that they stopped for 11 and a half months in Rivendell on the way home. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, um, that's the, exactly what I'm saying. The action that we see does not take anything like that long. We never get that kind of passage of time, uh, in this film. It doesn't take time to go anywhere, uh, in this film. Um, uh, so, yeah, the whole quest appears to have taken, based on the way that they flag time throughout the story, to have taken a matter of days or weeks. Um, and um, no, Mike, we didn't get a glimpse of a red handkerchief, though I was glad that we got Bilbo back to his pocket handkerchiefs at the end. That was a uh, that was a that was a good thing. But uh, but Mike, I'll make a sub note in my wish for a return to Rivendell that uh, we would uh, also get a red handkerchief. Um, Michael, of course, is a big, uh, Mike Thurway is a big, uh, fan of, uh, Elrond's red silk handkerchiefs that, uh, Bilbo is lent on his return journey. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Anyway, um, well, th- this has been a long time. I'm going to let you guys go. We're going to come back and you know t- talk more with the rest of the team uh, on Saturday. Um, you know, there'll be other, you know, you, you'll hear from Dave and Trish and there are a bunch of things that, uh, you know, that I would still like to cover more that I didn't get a, you know, that I sort of hit on the main things that were on my mind here tonight. Um, but, uh, uh, thanks for all of your questions and comments and things tonight. This was really fun. And I'll be back again on Saturday morning, as I said, with the, with the, with the whole team and we'll be, uh, talking things over then. So, um, I, uh, I hope to see some of you guys again and sort of spread the word to those who weren't here uh, to join us on Saturday morning. And thanks very much, everybody. I guess I should say this officially will be a podcast episode. So thanks for listening and Godspeed.